Please open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. If you're the kind of person who gets up super early in the morning before the sun is up, you'll know that if you go outside and it's still dark, you'll notice something. If you look to the east, if you look to the eastern sky before you can see the sun, that pitch black skyline will start to turn gray and then a little bit purple and then orange, and pretty soon you have rays of light that are actually coming around the curvature of the earth, and you can see that, that the dawn is about to break. When you see that light coming up over the horizon, even before you see the sun, it, it's a guarantee that the sun is on its way. The day is at hand. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It is an undeniable indicator of the inevitable. And just like the light precedes the sun, if you go outside early in the morning, the coming of Jesus was preceded by the coming of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John's ministry would not only precede Jesus' ministry just chronologically, but he would actually come to prepare the way. John's arrival announced that Jesus was next. Luke's story here includes the birth of John. Before he will tell us about the birth of Jesus, he tells us about the birth of John. And it's interesting the way in these first few chapters, Luke kind of lays them out side by side. It's the announcement about John's birth right next to the announcement about Jesus' birth. It's a miraculous birth for John and a miraculous birth for Jesus. He tells us about the birth of John and its significance and the birth of Jesus and his significance. He shows their similarities But he also shows their differences, and he traces the way through both of these birth narratives that God is beginning to spread the good news of his salvation through the births of these two men. The setting here in Luke chapter 1, the opening scene in verse 5 and verse 6 as we get into it, is actually the temple. And it's interesting because this opening scene in Luke's gospel, the temple, is actually the same as the closing scene. You don't have to flip there now, but we'll see in a few months or next year, whenever we get there, that in chapter 24, the final words of Luke's gospel says that the faithful are rejoicing in the temple. So it starts in the temple and ends in the temple, and I think there's a reason for that. It's a really fitting way for Luke's gospel to unfold. It begins with good news in the temple that God is speaking to man. God sends his angel Gabriel to announce to Zechariah that John the Baptist would be born. So it begins with God revealing his goodness and his grace to man. And it ends in the temple with the redeemed speaking to God, worshiping God, giving thanks to God for the glorious salvation that he has provided through Christ. So it's a beautiful bookend for this entire story. And this this divine revelation here that takes place in the temple in this opening scene, you need to understand that this is breaking a 400-year silence. And if you go back, you know, in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, your Bible probably has a blank page. You could just write 400 years on that blank page. It's been that long since a prophet has spoken. It's been that long since God has given any revelation to his people, since there's been any sort of vision, any sort of angelic messenger, any word from God. It's been silent. But this silence is shattered here in Luke chapter 1 as the good news is spoken to a man named Zechariah. 
And the point of this story is that the good news is that God is at work to bring salvation to his people. God is at work. God is doing something. He's not passive. He's not distant. He's not silent. He's not sitting on his hands. God is at work to bring salvation to his people. That's the good news. We talk about good news. We talk about the gospel. And the gospel fundamentally is an announcement that God is doing something. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us. So I want to share with you three truths this morning about this good news. Three truths we learn from this story. And the first truth is that the good news is for those who are in need. The good news is for those in need. Look in verse 5 through 7. It tells us, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We're introduced here to the characters in this story, and it's a faithful couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. But it's a faithful couple who have a painful sorrow. They have no children. We're told a little bit about them. They have a noble lineage. In fact, he's a priest. He comes from a priestly family. And that's, that's sort of a big deal if you're living in Israel in the first century. But his wife also comes from a priestly lineage. They not only have this noble heritage, they also, Zechariah has a righteous occupation. He's a priest. This is a man of faith. A man who serves God, not just in his spare time, like that's his full-time job, is to serve the Lord and lead Israel in the worship of Yahweh. So these are good people from a, from a human standpoint. These are people who are faithful, people who are noble, people who are righteous. We're told that it's not just they have this, this noble lineage and ancestry. It's not just that he has a very respectable job. This is actually who they are. It says in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Their moral character is righteous. Blameless here doesn't mean they're perfect. It simply means that they faithfully obeyed God's law. They loved God supremely, and they loved their neighbor as themselves. They obeyed God's commandments, and they were exemplary in this. It's not like these are, are people who are hypocritical. It's not like these are people who are walking in rebellion against God. They are righteous and blameless. And then comes this startling um, but, verse 7, but they had no child. Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years. Now, now why is this such a, a surprise and a contrast? Well, to get yourself back into the mindset of, of ancient Israel, fruitfulness in children was part of God's promise for their nation, and it was seen as a mark of God's blessing. So if someone didn't have children, the question that would have brought up in their mind and the question it would have brought up in everyone's mind is, well, what did they do to get God mad at them? This must be their fault. Surely God is withholding his blessing because of some sin. This must be some sort of maybe generational curse. Somebody in their family did something. And this must be a sign of God's displeasure. 
It was often supposed that childlessness was some sort of divine punishment, but Luke makes it clear up front, that is not the case. These are righteous, noble, faithful people who love God and obey him. And they're not just barren, they're also old, very old, advanced in years, which means that that window, that biological clock, I mean, that thing's been off and put away in the closet for a while. They are no longer uh, even thinking about having children. And the way Luke sets this up about a faithful couple, but they don't have any children and they're advanced in years, it automatically reminds us of other stories in the Bible, doesn't it? It reminds us of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, who were very old in age, but God had promised them a son, had promised them many descendants. And to them, they were given Isaac, the son of promise, this miraculous birth, all the way at the beginning of Israel's history. Isaac himself would grow up, would take a wife, but Rebekah would be barren as well. But Isaac prayed and she was given twins so that the covenant promise might continue. Righteous Hannah, whom we meet in 1 Samuel chapter 1, was barren. She had no child, but she prayed to the Lord at the tabernacle and God gave her a son whom she named Samuel. Israel's history is marked with stories of faithful men and women who had no child. But this barrenness was often the stage upon which God did great things. God would graciously grant those faithful people of old children. He gave them children who would become patriarchs, children whom, who would become prophets. He gave these children to barren women so that his program of redemption could continue. God wasn't just giving them children so that they could have a happy family, although he cares about that. No, this was key to him moving his program forward, to bringing salvation and blessing to his covenant people. So the way, the way that Luke begins this story, if, if you've read much of the Bible, this automatically sort of gives us this anticipation. It makes us curious, okay, what's going to happen next? They're old, they're faithful, they trust God, but they have no child. It's like he's setting us up for what comes next. This is much like John chapter 9. The disciples in John chapter 9, they saw a man who had been born blind. And in John 9 verse 2, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes sorrow, sometimes suffering, Sometimes loss is not God's judgment. It's not some sort of punishment or sin. It's simply God setting the stage for what he is about to do, to display his glory, to display his goodness for his people. Sometimes God sets it up this way so that his glory will be seen by all. Now, this couple desperately wanted a son, I'm sure. And Israel desperately needed a savior. And God knows both of those needs, and he is about to work to meet them both. Little did Zechariah know, as he traveled to Jerusalem to fulfill his priestly duty, that he was about to get the most shocking news of his life, that God was going to give them a son, and this son would actually prepare the way and pave the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. So the good news is for those we're needy. We're introduced to this needy couple, and this needy couple is representative of a needy nation, a nation who needs a son, the son of God, who would come and bring salvation. 
But number two, we find in verses 8 through 17 that the good news is that God is fulfilling his promise to save. God is fulfilling his promise to save. God makes promises. He promises to redeem his people, and he also keeps those promises. And even when it seems like God is far off and when God is quiet, you wonder, God, when are you going to do it? We can be assured that God is fulfilling his promise to save. Like I mentioned earlier, at this point, there's been no revelation from God for 400 years. 400 years of silence. There's no prophets, no visions, no angels, nothing. But all of that changes when Zechariah goes into the temple. If we pick it up right here in verse 8, it says, Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Back at this point in history, there were about 1,800 priests who served. So Zechariah was one of many. And they were split into 24 different divisions. And Zechariah, we're told, served in the division of Abijah. It was the eighth division. Um, Obviously, you don't need 1,800 priests all serving in the temple at the same time. So they served on a rotational basis. And when their rotation was up, the various priests in each division would cast lots, sort of like drawing straws, to see who would get to perform what duties. And Zechariah, we're told, was chosen to go and offer incense. Now, this was a very high honor. This was a very significant part of of their, their worship in the temple. It was a sacred duty, and it could only be performed by an individual priest once in his lifetime. They would have to draw straws, cast lots, to see who would get to perform this very special, very um, honored task. And once you got to do it, you could never do it again because they wanted to give everybody a chance. But there were many priests who never got the chance to do this. So, so as we go into this story, don't think of Zechariah as like, you know, clocking in and just doing his normal day's work. This is a once-in-a-lifetime moment where he gets to go in to the holy place and and to lay that incense on the altar so that as it burns and the smoke blows its way into the inner sanctuary, it would represent the prayers of the nation. The nation is gathered outside, and they are praying. And and Zechariah is inside offering this incense, which represents the prayers of the people to God. So Zechariah's role as a priest here is significant. This isn't just his story. It's the story of God's people. He's a representative of the faithful, those who worship God. So while this story that we're reading is very personal for him, and God does have good news for Zechariah and his wife, um, God is actually revealing something here that has significance for everyone. It's not just for one family. It's for all of God's people. And look at what happens while he's in there offering incense. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. So yes, if you saw an angel, you would be afraid too. Um, If you read scripture, you'll see that anyone who has a vision like this, anyone who who beholds this, this glorious 
and powerful, supernatural being is typically stricken with great fear, overcome with terror. They usually fall on their face and they tremble, and it's almost like they, they, they lay down like they're dead. But this angel gives a word of encouragement to Zechariah. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just." to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah is afraid. He's likely on his face at this point, but the angel says, do not be afraid. And he gives him a word of encouragement. He encourages him by saying, first of all, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I'm sure Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed many, many times for a son. Just like Isaac prayed for Rebekah. Just like uh, Hannah prayed before the tabernacle that she would have a son. I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed all throughout their 20s. They'd probably continued to pray all throughout the decade of their 30s. They had probably prayed for a son throughout the decade of their 40s. Maybe those prayers began to slow as they entered into their 50s. I'm sure in their 60s, that's a prayer that they were no longer praying. Judging by Zechariah's surprise in verse 18, by this time, it seems like they'd put all hope of children behind them. So you kind of wonder, is is that the prayer that, that God is answering? While they had definitely prayed for children in the past, at this moment, Zechariah was praying. I mean, as he offers incense, he's supposed to pray in that moment on behalf of the people. His duty was to represent them, to seek God on their behalf. And remember, God had been silent for 400 years. The Messiah had not yet come. And even more than Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting for a child, the nation was waiting for God's salvation. The nation was waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And now the angel shows up and says, Zechariah, it's time. It's time. God is at work fulfilling his promise to save. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And amazingly, though, it wasn't just the prayer for salvation for Israel. It would also be the prayer for a child. God would going to weave both of these two things together, the hopes of this couple and the hopes of the nation. And he says, your prayer has been heard. And he says in verse 13, you will bear a son. You will bear a son. Notice what he says about this son. This son would be a powerful agent of God's redeeming grace. He says that he will be great before the Lord in verse 15. There would be something significant about this child. He wouldn't just be like the other kids. Later, Jesus himself would say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, this doesn't mean he would be great in the world's eyes. They would think that John was weird. Wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey, living in the wilderness and telling everybody to repent of their sin and calling out their leaders for their immorality, 
that doesn't necessarily make you friends and influence people. That's, that's not the way that you increase you know, your public approval rating. So he would be great specifically before the Lord. He would be great because he would serve God and because he would be significant in God's program. God would use John in ways that were incredibly significant. He says that he would be great before the Lord and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. This is significant, that John would be unusually empowered for his mission. You see, his greatness was because of what he would do to serve God. And what he would do to serve God required divine power. In order for him to fulfill that mission, he needed divine power. And so the spirit would be given to John from birth. Now keep in mind, this is before Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church. This is basically an Old Testament type of scenario. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit was not given to everyone the way it is today. Today, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was specially given to those who served God in crucial roles. It was given to kings. It was given to prophets. Those that had a critical mission to fulfill for the sake of God's people. And this filling with the Holy Spirit was not always permanent. We know with King Saul, for example, that the Spirit was taken away. We know that King David, after his sin, prayed a prayer of confession and repentance and said, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But John was to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And this is remarkable. And it's evidence to us that John did not choose his path in life. Rather, he was chosen by God and appointed to this task and specially empowered to carry it out. And this is why he is not told to touch wine or strong drink. It's because he's to be exclusively controlled by the Holy Spirit and not to be under the control of any substance. The power of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, it must not be diluted or masked or dulled by alcohol. It's because of his mission He's consecrated to this task. And we're told that he was going to have an impact on the nation as he carried out this mission that was very similar to the prophet Elijah. It says in verse 17, or start in verse 16, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now is when, if, if Zechariah's eyes weren't big already, to know that he and his wife were going to have a child and this child would be great and filled with the Holy Spirit, this reference to Elijah and to a nationally significant ministry, this would have really got his attention because this now is starting to introduce a messianic flavor. The words of the angel are quoting the very final words of the Old Testament. If you go back to the very last page of your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, there is a promise that connects the, the coming of one like Elijah to, God's, to the fulfillment of God's plans for salvation. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
The coming of Elijah and the day of the Lord are linked. The day of the Lord carries this idea of both salvation for Israel and judgment for her enemies. Elijah's role would be to bring about repentance among the nation Israel so that they would not experience the judgment of the day of the Lord, but instead would receive the salvation that would come on that day. And so John's arrival to fulfill a ministry like Elijah's, to bring about repentance and turning to God, that signals that God is fulfilling his plan, that the day of the Lord is drawing near, and that God's plan of salvation is taking a significant step forward. You see, John the Baptist would prepare the people to meet their God. When it says in Malachi chapter 4 that he would prepare the people for their Lord, when it says in Luke chapter 1 that he would go before him, we always think of the him as being Jesus. And yes, that's true. But in context, it's God himself. We know that Jesus is God, so there's no conflict there. But specifically, Zechariah would have heard these words as saying that his son's ministry would have been preparing people to meet their God, calling people to repent, urging them to turn from their sin and renounce their wicked ways. And as their hearts are changed, that would have had great um, impact on the people. It would have brought about, first of all, horizontal reconciliation. You know what causes conflict between fathers and sons? You know what causes conflict between the generations, between neighbors, between people of different groups and social classes and backgrounds? It's sin. It's pride. When men are broken of their sin, when they humble themselves, reconciliation happens. The angel tells Zechariah that his son would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and vice versa, that there would be a great horizontal reconciliation that would take place as sin is turned from. But there would also be a great vertical change that takes place. The people would be prepared to be reconciled with their God. You know what's even more important than you being reconciled horizontally with other people? It's you being made right with God. That's the most significant relationship. And John's ministry would prepare the people as they laid aside their sin, laid aside their pride, laid aside their idolatry. It would prepare them to receive the grace of God so that they could be reconciled with him. What would be all the result of this? Well, we're told in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice. You see, this was good news, not just for Zachariah and Elizabeth, that they would be joyful. They would have much gladness because they would have a baby. But many would rejoice at his birth. This was good news, not just for their family, but for all of God's people. You see, the birth of John and his ministry signaled that God had not forgotten his people. He hadn't forgotten Zachariah and Elizabeth, and he had not forgotten Israel. He was at work fulfilling his promise to save. Now, God was doing that in his timing, and he does it in surprising fashion. But he does it in such a way that the end result would bring maximum glory to his name and also maximum joy to his people. The good news is that God is at work fulfilling his promise to save. But number three, there's a third truth we need to learn about this good news. It's good news for needy people, needy people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and the nation Israel. It's good news that, that God is at work fulfilling his promise to save. That brings us joy. 
But third, it is good news that must be believed. The good news must be believed. Look in verse 18. Look at how Zechariah responds. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In Zechariah's response, we see tension. He says, okay, I understand the words that you're saying, but I also know that my wife and I are very old. And out of this tension, he asks for confirmation. Zechariah asks for a sign. He said, how shall I know this? Verse 18. It's funny, one pastor titled his sermon on this passage, How Not to Talk to an Angel. I wish I would have thought of that because I would have titled this sermon that, but somebody else already took that idea. But in essence, what Zechariah is saying is, okay, so you're bringing me a message from God, but can you give me a sign so that I know it's really going to happen? It's a statement of disbelief. And disbelief is really unbelief. Think about that. God sent him an angel. God sent him a direct messenger from heaven to tell him what was going to happen. And God, through this angel, quoted scripture to say, what I have written, I am now doing. Do you want more of a sign than that? Like, that's already a sign. (laughs) It's already a sign that God's gonna do what he said in Malachi chapter four. So how does the angel answer him? It's interesting, there's kind of a play on words. Zechariah says, I am an old man. And the angel replies, I am Gabriel. Like, that's the answer. His explanation is that he comes from the presence of God. He's like, listen, that's all the confirmation you should need. Gabriel, we meet in other places of Scripture as well. He's no junior-level angel. He's not the intern who got sent to deliver the message. Gabriel is a high-ranking being who dwells in the very presence of God. And he's coming directly from the source. He says, listen, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And he gave me these words, this good news, to speak to you. Gabriel claims to be a trustworthy and honored messenger. And to ask for a sign on top of what God has already done is just flat out disrespectful. But the reason Zechariah's request is so out of place is not because of who Gabriel is. It's not that Gabriel is such a big deal. It's actually because of who Gabriel represents. He speaks for God. And to question the words of Gabriel is to question God. Zechariah isn't just asking for a sign from the angel. He's asking God. He's saying, God, I'm not sure that what you said could really happen. Because of who God is, no sign should be needed. God's word is trustworthy. He had given good news. This good news ought to have been received and believed in and rejoiced in, but instead it is questioned. Zechariah's disbelief of the angel's message amounts to unbelief in the word of God. Asking for a sign is is 
almost always shown to be negative in the New Testament. It's seen to be a rejection of Christ and rejection of his word. Luke chapter 11, verse 16 says that others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. People didn't believe in the words of Jesus. They demanded a sign. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is a sign of grief and even anger. And Jesus said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And both of those are shown to be unbelief. It's an attitude that says, prove it to me before I will believe it. And it's the opposite of faith. Listen, the answer had already been given. Zechariah had the word of God. And asking for more is basically telling God that his word is not enough. And before we're too hard on Zechariah, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, is God's word enough for us? If God's word says it, do we feel like that's enough? Or do we expect more? Do we ask for more? Do we demand more than what God has already said in his word? Asking for a sign is a refusal to exercise faith. Rather than seeking a sign, we are to embrace the word of God as it has been revealed to us. So what happens? Zechariah asked for a sign Gabriel actually does give him a sign. In verse 20, he says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This sign is given. There's a miraculous thing that happens. Zechariah can speak. Zechariah can hear. But from this moment onward, until his son is born, he will be deaf and mute. He won't be able to speak, and, and we're told later that others would make signs, you know, to ask him questions, so it, it appears that he cannot hear or speak. So that's a, a miracle. That would have confirmed that, okay, there is real divine power at work here carrying out these words. So it, it is a sign, but the sign that is given is disciplinary in nature. It is, as one author calls it, a severe mercy. He wasn't owed a sign. Gabriel could have said no. God could have said no. But he actually did give him a sign. But the sign is ironic. It's sort of a poetic justice. Because you did not believe my words, you won't be able to speak. Because you didn't receive what you heard, you won't be able to hear. It's disciplinary. It's corrective in nature. And this not only confirmed that the message was true, it was a sign, but it would also teach Zechariah that such good news... Words from God, when you hear it, it must be believed. Zechariah wasn't the only one who realized that day that the 400 years of silence had been broken. If you look in verse 21, it says the people were waiting for Zechariah. So they were gathered outside, they'd been praying, and the final step in Zechariah's process that day was to go out from the temple and then give this blessing, to speak this word of blessing over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. That ironic blessing from the Old Testament. And it was taking way too long. 
It didn't take that long to offer incense. The people knew something's going on in there. Maybe they were worried. Maybe Zechariah was sinful. Maybe he had done something to displease the Lord. Maybe God had, had taken his life. It wouldn't be the first time that priests had done something out of line, and it had cost them their life. But Zechariah does come out. And when he comes out, verse 22, says he's unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. They realized. They could tell something had happened. Zechariah was not able to bless the people that day. Zechariah was not able to speak a word of blessing over them because God had already spoken a word of blessing. He said, I am fulfilling my promise to bring salvation. John is going to be born. He's going to prepare the way. And then my son is going to show up. And a great salvation is going to be provided for my people. So this little scene ends not just with Zechariah and, and I'm sure his wife filled with expectation and wonder, but the people as well. They are also filled with expectation and wonder because they realize God is on the move. And this good news must be believed. Zechariah couldn't tell them about it. He was learning a lesson. But soon all would know as John began to preach and then as Jesus came on the scene that the good news of God's salvation is a call for faith. As we turn from our sin and lay aside those obstacles, we must believe by faith the promise of God, the good news of salvation through Christ. There's a lot we can learn from this story today, but I think we can boil it down to two words, which would be faith and joy. You can just write those down if you're taking notes. Faith and joy. Jesus has come. We're not waiting on future promises of, of salvation. We look back to the cross. God's grace now extends to us. And we've been told that one day Jesus is going to return. That this salvation that has begun will be complete when Christ gathers his people, when he resurrects the sleeping saints. He glorifies us and takes us to be where he is forever. Jesus is going to return and defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. And this is a cause for great joy and gladness. It's a cause for rejoicing. But here's what gets in the way of our joy. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Unbelief obstructs joy and gladness. Verse 14 says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice. But you know what keeps us from having joy and gladness and rejoicing? When we don't believe that what God has said or we don't believe that what God is doing is really enough. Maybe you struggle to have joy. Maybe gladness seems far from you. Here's one of the reasons. One of the reasons is because we look for joy, we look for gladness, not in Christ, not in his promises, but here in this world. We look for money, we look for health, we look for a happy family situation, we look for success at our job, we look for notoriety, we look for comfort, all here in this world. And when our circumstances don't pan out the way we want, when we don't receive the love from people that we want, when we don't have the number in the bank account that we want, when we don't have the physical health and abilities and strength that we want, when we don't have the appreciation and the respect and the acknowledgement that we want, 
we find it impossible to have joy. What happens when we look for our joy in Christ? What happens when the basis of our joy is what has God promised? What has God done? What is God doing? And what will God do? What happens when we look there? What we find is that there is joy and there is gladness. There's a reason to rejoice. Even if all the other stuff in our life seems to be falling apart. An old couple like Zachariah and Elizabeth could rejoice because God was doing something. And they looked to him. I think that's instructive for us. Faith and joy. When we believe God's word, we look and see what God is doing, and that's what gives us joy. But, but here's the problem. Many of you know that. Many of you believe that. Many of you believe every promise that's written in the Bible is true. Or do you? You see, you know it's there. You've heard the words, just like Zechariah. We are people who know the word. We, that'd probably be a strength of this ministry. We study scripture. We preach the Bible. You guys memorize it. You talk about it. You know what it says. But do we trust it? That's the question. Maybe these words could easily fit in your mouth. I know God promises to provide for my needs, but I'm anxious because I'm not sure if he's really going to do it. I know the Bible says that all things work together for good, but is that really going to be true for me? That's why anxiety and worry and fear is an enemy that many of you have to battle on a daily basis. You know what the Bible says, but there's that question mark. Is it really true for me? I know the Bible says that my sins are forgiven, I know the Bible says that that they've been nailed to the cross. I know the Bible says that God has cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. But you feel shame and you wrestle with guilt and condemnation over sins that have been already confessed and given to the Lord. You know what you did last year or two decades ago or yesterday And yes, it's been confessed. And yes, you know that 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes. But are my sins really forgiven? Is God angry at me? Is God unhappy with me? Does he not love me anymore because of that sin that's been committed? Yes, I know he loves and forgives all of his children, but... I think I'm probably in this category that's like second class because of my sins. I don't think I could ever be really forgiven. You know what that is? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And such unbelief obstructs our joy. Many of us would say, I know what the Bible says. But our failure to fully trust and embrace and receive God's promises cripples our ability to experience and enjoy the peace and the gladness that God offers. And the answer is not that God needs to do more or say more. The answer is that we need to look to the clearly revealed word of God and believe that it's enough. And we need to pray like that father in Mark's gospel, I believe, help my unbelief. Many of us have so much biblical knowledge. The place where we need to grow 
is to believe that it's true and to believe that it's true enough to actually feel it. Too often our doctrine and our feelings are on different pages. And and the work of sanctification, the process of growing in our faith is bringing what we know to be true and bringing what we feel step by step closer and closer into harmony. And it's hard, it's a battle, it's a challenge. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? So I'm not saying that this is simple or it should take five minutes. Just read the Bible and you're done. No, this is a process of growth. But that process of growth may require confession. Father, forgive me for not believing what your word says. Forgive me for not trusting it fully. Forgive me for sitting on the fence, being halfway in. Forgive me for hedging my bets and looking for signs and looking for something other than the perfect and sufficient and clear truth that you've already given me in your word. If we start with confession and we deal with our disbelief as unbelief, that will clear the way to receive God's grace, to grow in faith and have the joy and gladness that can be ours in Christ. If you're an unbeliever today, what God wants you to do is believe. He wants you to believe what his word says that you're a sinner and that you're destined for judgment, but the good news is that Jesus came and he died on the cross in your place. And scripture promises if you confess him as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those aren't my words. It's Romans chapter 10. Go home and look it up. Pray through it. Think about it and wrestle with whether or not you believe it's true for you. It's a promise. And God's will is for you to come and believe And to have the joy of knowing that you belong to him, your sins are forgiven, eternal life is yours. And that Christ offers you an abundant life. Believer, God wants you to believe his word, to trust it, to rest in it, to be a people that are characterized by peace and confidence. Yeah, life is hard. We weep. We deal with loss, we deal with heartache, we deal with suffering. But underneath all of that is a foundation that knows God's word is true. And so we're able, like Paul says, sorrowful but always rejoicing. How does that work? It works if you're honest with human suffering, but you're also confident in the truth of God's word. We might be a people who may at times be sorrowful, But we are always able to rejoice because we know that the good news is for needy people like us. Because we know that God is at work to fulfill his promises to save. And because we know that his word is trustworthy and it's enough for us. At the end of this story, Zechariah and Elizabeth are at home. Verse 23 says, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What we find is that the words of God through the angel Gabriel are coming true. And you can imagine as Elizabeth stays hidden for these first five months, you can imagine what's going through her mind. Not only would their shame and reproach be taken away, 
everyone would know this is not a couple that is cursed by God. This is not a couple that's under God's judgment. This is a couple that is undeniably blessed by God. How else do you describe someone at their age having a child? Their shame and reproach would be taken away. But even more than that, Elizabeth and John knew that the forerunner of the Messiah was arriving, which meant it would not be long until the Lord's Messiah would appear. Their time of waiting for a son would soon be over, and Israel's time of waiting for God's son would soon be over as well. They knew that the good news was true, that God was at work to bring salvation to his people. This is what they came to understand. And my prayer is that we would come to embrace this truth as well, that we would believe God's word, that we would trust and rest in his promise, and that as a result of that, we would be the kind of people who are able to rejoice in the good news with joy and gladness at all that God has promised, at all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that he will do for us. Let's pray. Father, as we read a story like this, we are amazed by your power. You would supernaturally bring about a child for an old couple. We're amazed by your promises that even when it seems like you've forgotten, even when it seems like you're far away, that's the precise moment when you are about to act. 400 years of silence interrupted by this startling good news. Lord, we thank you for the perfect word you've given us. We have something even better than a personal message from an angel. We have the perfect and sufficient word. It's better than a vision. It is sure. It is clear. It is true. We thank you for the good news that you reveal to us on the pages of Scripture, and we ask that we would learn from uh, Zechariah's imperfect faith, that we would be challenged to believe wholeheartedly all that you say. And as we do so, God, I pray that you would expand our joy. I pray that today, as we go home, that despite whatever grief and sorrow and difficulty may be happening in our own personal lives, I pray that we would have joy in knowing who you are, knowing that you're faithful, knowing that you are gracious, knowing that you save, knowing that your word is true. Lord, ground us in the truth that we might rejoice in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.